Thank you, Nate, Johnny, worship team, for leading us in song. And friends, why don't you turn to John chapter 7 in your Bible, John chapter 7. This is where we'll be today, verses 1 through 36. There is a, a sizable amount of scripture that we'll be dealing with today, but I hope that we can, in it, we can find some simplicity into its message, and I believe we will. John 7, and let's begin in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then also Jesus went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? A crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. 
So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Thus reads the word of the living God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word because it is truth. And in it, we find words of life and hope. Thank you that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Savior. He is the hope of nations. He is the light of the world. And all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness can be satisfied in him. Though the world may not see it, or though the world refuse it, what is true is true. And we know this is true, that God sent his Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but should have everlasting life. We thank you and praise you for these things, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. As we turn to John 7, it is a both joyous occasion and also a sorrowful one. It is one that both uh, is met with great anticipation and excitement. It's also one that is met with great hostility and anger. We turn now in John 7 to a different aspect of Jesus' ministry. And as we begin this scene here, I'm reminded a lot about what's probably going to happen in most of your lives this week. It's a time of feasting and a time of great rejoicing. It's the Feast of Booths here in chapter 7. And in many ways, it does mimic the kind of joy and excitement that's coming with this Thanksgiving season. Uh, You know that Thanksgiving dates back to the 17th century. It was a holiday that kind of incited with pilgrims arriving here in America and uh, coming across some Native Americans who helped them understand the land. And over time, what it really became was an opportunity by which not only were you grateful, but in particular, especially for those early natives to our country, it was a time to be grateful for the plentifulness of the land, the abundance of what they had, the provision of what was there. You know, we kind of jokingly talked about it last week with the Kahoot game. We put an image of a cornucopia, this symbol of having plenty, this symbol of not lacking anything. Uh, it's this little instrument by, uh, from its mouth comes forth all kinds of fruits and vegetation and food, and it's a, it's a sign that there's much to be grateful for. There is an abundance. And this Feast of Booths, it mimics something like that. It's a week-long celebration dating back to Leviticus chapter 23. Matter of fact, why don't you turn there with me really quick 
And let's see how the Lord instituted this. Leviticus 23, maybe not a book you're used to diving into, but inspired nonetheless, and so you should read it. Verse 33 of chapter 23, the Lord spoke to Moses, this after declaring the Day of Atonement, several feasts and festivals that are to be honored in commemoration of God and His people. He spoke to Moses, verse 33, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offering to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It's a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. Verse 37, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, drink offerings, each on its proper day. This is the commemoration of what God has done for Israel, and you actually find more of it detailed for us in verses 39 onward. When you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day you shall be solemn and rest, and the eighth day there shall be solemn rest, and you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout the generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites should dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This isn't just some kind of religious ritual done in uh, some kind of uh, disheartened way. This is a celebration. This is a gathering of people around food and one another and a, even a setting up of these kind of pretend tents or, or booze that were supposed to remind them of when God brought them out of Israel. In fact, there is something about it that, for me at least, communicates a little bit of God's own playfulness. Here you're going to set up shop and you're going to uh, play act a little bit and remember how good I've been to you. It's a reminder that when you worship God rightly, there's actually quite a lot of fun in it. And so this great week of feasting is upon the people. And for the last six months, we know this because the series of events that have just taken place happened around the Passover, which is around the month of April. Now we've reached this Feast of Booze, which is around the month of October, maybe late September. For the last six months, Jesus has been in Galilee. And you can see that it tells us here in chapter 7, verse 1 of John, he would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Jesus has removed himself from Judea 
And he's wandering in Galilee, ministering to the people. If you read Matthew 16 to 18, it fills in the blanks a little bit of what Jesus has been doing for these six months. Not only has he been ministering to the people, but he's also been training up a lot more particularly his 12 disciples. Crowds that followed him for two days could not get, I'm sure, what those disciples received for six months. And all the while, Jesus doing this intentionally because he understood that the Jews were so angered by his ministry and his words that they wanted to kill him. So Jesus has stayed away. He's played the role of the background. And here comes this time of great rejoicing and great feasting and great fellowship and great celebration. Everyone recognizing that God has been bountiful with his people. He saved them out of Egypt, but not only that, he led them to the land of promise. He gave them everything he's promised before. He is kind to his people. He provides for his people. He gives his people what they need. What more would get a Jew out of home to celebrate than this feast? Nothing. But in this feast... There is a big problem. This is a dinner table that's set, but there is so much discord. And the issue isn't politics. The issue isn't how conservative or liberal you might be. The issue isn't about some family dynamic that no one's been able to resolve yet. The issue isn't, is there enough to eat or not enough, or, or more than we can imagine? The issue at this dinner table is Jesus. The issue that's centering into this Feast of Booze this year is that Jesus is coming. Or is he? Everyone now seems to know of him. And everyone has a different opinion of him. Some seem to think he's a good guy. Some seem to think he's the prophet that was coming like Moses. Some might even think this could truly be the Messiah. Some are going to declare, as will happen in this account, that he has a demon that's possessing him. Some say that he comes from the devil. Some say that he's a criminal. Some say that he ought to be killed. What are we to do with Jesus? That's the question around this feast. And friends, that question from long ago is still the same question you have to answer today. What are you to do with Jesus? Maybe you think that Jesus is some kind of happy-go-lucky kind of person. You've put that kind of persona on him, so wherever you take him, everything will be nice and rainbows and unicorns and flowery and just really pristine and nothing is going to go wrong. It's not the kind of Jesus that shows up here. And if you believe in the kind of Jesus of the Bible, that's not the kind of Jesus you take with you. If you believe in the Jesus of the Bible, wherever you go and you declare his truth, there is this kind of dysfunction. And wherever you go and you declare this kind of truth, there should be a clarity that he and he alone is the hope of all people. Here at this food, there's much dysfunction, but there's very minimal confusion The reason that people are kind of bent out of shape because of Jesus is because what he's saying is clear and what he's saying is true. 
We discussed this last time in John 6, where the people grumbled because what Jesus is saying is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Who can understand it? And we discussed, it's not that it's not understandable. It's that it's not likable. The message that you're a sinner, that God is a savior, and the only way to receive that salvation is to believe upon the Lord Jesus and trust in him for a lifetime. That's good news for those who receive it. That is blaringly loud noise and annoyingly so to those who do not receive it. That is well received by those who understand and receive grace. It is hated by those who want to trust in themselves and love their sin. And so in John chapter 7, I want to very quickly walk you through five scenes that will make it clear to you that Jesus is the only Christ. Jesus is the only Christ. Number one, I want you to see that. In verses 1 through 9, and number one is a disbelieving family, a disbelieving family. Notice that of all the disciples Jesus make, it kind of seems to happen that the one people, the one set of people he can't get on his own side is his own family. Verse 2, the Jews are celebrating this feast of booze, and so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. That seems like pretty easy advice coming from a brother. These are Jesus' half-brothers. And if you you understand what the virgin birth means, you understand that Jesus is the oldest. So these are all his younger brothers. All of them seem to be giving him sound advice. Hey, if you want people to know you, you should go out and show them what you can do. Why don't you just go out there and, and, and be the greatest showman? I mean, give them something to marvel at. Give them something to see. But for the last six months, you've been so hidden. Why would people believe in something they're not seeing? That might seem like common sense, but it comes from unbelieving hearts. And we know that because chapter 7, verse 5 says, not even his brothers believed in him. Now, if his brothers knew anything about Jesus, they would know people don't believe in him and people aren't following him. And it's not for a lack of showing them what he can do. We have seen it already in six chapters, the amazing, marvelous, unique wonders and mysteries of of God's uh, miraculous works that Jesus is capable of doing. That's not in question. But the brothers, like false disciples and unbelieving disciples, only want Jesus around if he can do more. If Jesus were only to do more, then we would believe in him. They're just egging him on. You might have a brother or sister who eggs you on. You know what that's like. Hey, why don't you just like, why don't you just do this and it's all to get you in trouble? Oh, why don't you just do this and it's because it's their homework? Or whatever it might be, this is such a natural dynamic amongst brothers. But in Jesus' situation, there's something so unique about it because this isn't 
a family tie that we're talking about. It's a spiritual reality. They know that Jesus is declared to be the Christ. They know that Jesus is declared to be the Messiah. They know that Jesus is supposed to be this great Savior and prophet. Well, then go show everyone what you can do, Jesus. This egging him on to see more wonders. It's unfortunate, but the language that they speak with him here, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. This is actually very reminiscent of someone who spoke to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew 4, 3 and 6, there is someone by the name of Satan who comes to tempt Jesus and he uses this very kind of language to try to get Jesus to do what he wants. And anyone who's trying to get Jesus to operate and to work on their terms is no better than Satan. Not even if you're Jesus' brothers. This is a disbelieving family. And disbelief has grave consequences. The reality should hit home with you too. If you thought that it was sad enough that Judas doesn't love Jesus, imagine these guys who watched him grow up, watched him be perfect, watch him walk in obedience, watch him always respect his father and mother, watch him always do his work with diligence, watch him always honor the Lord with his speech, watch him always honor his relationships with other people, watch him always honor his friends with deference and with selflessness. Watch him always give Yahweh praise that's due and worthy of his name alone. Watch him always do what would honor the Father and not man. If his brothers saw him do all that and didn't believe, and if his brothers saw him do all that and still needed him as a Savior, how much more do we? Friends, this is a call and a reminder to you that all who are not Christ need Christ. Every single one of us who can hear the name of Jesus and understand his excellencies need to come to terms that we need him as our savior. This disbelieving family is testing him and they're pushing him. And Jesus is not moved by the extent of their unbelief to do anything. I hope you recognize that too. Maybe you're here and you have believed in Jesus. You're praying for someone who you know doesn't know the gospel yet. They don't yet believe that Jesus is their savior and you're hoping that Jesus would do something. I pray you understand that their unbelief will not make Jesus do anything. Jesus is going to work at his own time. The brothers are pushing Jesus to go with them to this feast and Jesus instead says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not yet come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. You would think that the brother's unbelief would move Jesus to try to convince them right on the spot. Uh, Jesus has to do something miraculous here to make sure these brothers believe right away. It's not how Jesus operates. Because number two here, not only is there the disbelieving family, there's a divine timeline. Number two, there's a divine 
timeline. His time has not yet come. You remember that Jesus said very similar words to his own mother in John chapter 2, verse 4. There where she's saying there's not enough wine for this wedding, Jesus do something about it. He says, what's that got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And here he reiterates that to his own brothers. There are family expectations for Jesus, and then there's the father's expectations for Jesus. And when those two things come in opposition to one another, it's not hard for Jesus to choose which way to go. I wonder if that's true for you. I wonder in light of all the expectations set for you in life, if it's easier for you to cave in to all the voices around you except for the voice of God. I wonder when everyone's pressuring to you to do something, maybe to act in a certain way or to speak in a certain way or to think in a certain way, I wonder who the loudest voice in your head is. And I wonder if it's God the Father. For Jesus it was, and perfectly so. And Jesus understood this was not his time to go to Jerusalem. We already know that in verse 1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's not my time to die yet. That's coming for me, but this isn't it. The world hates him, and he knows it. The world doesn't hate his brothers. Why? Because his brothers are just like the world. The world hates Jesus because he's different from the world. He testifies, look at what he notes as being what's very particular as to why the world hates him. He testifies that its works are evil. Friends, I know you know your Bible well enough to know that elsewhere Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates me, it'll hate you also. And here we see that Jesus isn't going to be moved just because his brothers tell him to. He has a father to obey and the father's will to obey. And in that, he's not blind to the hatred going on, going on around him. And Jesus was the first to say that haters are going to hate. He understood that very keenly. He understood that very well. Now, I would ask you this. What does it say if God's people, those who know Jesus and love Jesus, are received by the world as its own? What does it say about his people? If the world would not receive God's Son, why would a believing Christian believe that the world would receive you? Friends, once you make allegiance with Christ, you have broken off allegiance with the world. And it's very clear for us as we even begin to open this passage up that you understand that to be true for you. That now because you believe in Christ and you submit to Christ, you are in opposition to the world. What does your life say about your allegiance? What does your life say about what you believe? Maybe more importantly, what does your life say about who you believe? Is your life a testimony of Christ's saving grace in you? Because if it is, the world will not receive you. But what's more is this, it won't matter to you at all. Because your song is, take the world and give me Jesus. In light of this great hatred against Jesus, he's moving on his own timeline. 
And this passage has tripped many people up because Jesus declares, the world hates me, they're out to kill me, so I'm not going to this festival. I'm not going to this feast. And then you run into verse 10. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And now everyone turns to Jesus and says, gotcha. You lied. You said you weren't going to the feast. And now you are going to the feast. And anyone who thinks Jesus is lying here just is lacking a little bit of critical thinking. Jesus is not going to this feast the way his brothers think he's going to this feast. He's not going to this feast because his brothers think he should be at this feast. He's not going to be there because the brothers think he should go and show off. Jesus is going to go on his own terms, on a different agenda, under different instructions. Jesus is going to go because the Father will compel him to go, not in public like the brothers want, but in private the way his Father wants. Here we're reminded that Jesus truly is a humble King and Savior. He didn't come to show off, but he came to save. He didn't come to impress you. He came to save you. He didn't come to simply make you think he's great. He came to show you that by means of his humility and his humiliation. Jesus refuses glory for himself because he has to be glorified through the humiliation of the cross. And so Jesus will go to this festival, not because the brothers tell him to, but because God the Father moves him to. And out of obedience to his Father, he goes. And the Jews, verse 11, were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. It's very clear that to side with Jesus is to side with the minority. And to side with Jesus is to put you in opposition with religion. Jesus shows up finally at this feast and the people start muttering a little bit. What's gonna happen here? This leads us to number three, a deadly encounter. A deadly encounter. We can pick it up in verse 14. Jesus shows up at the middle of this feast and he shows up and immediately he goes to the temple and begins teaching. So Jesus doesn't come to the feast to show off his mighty works. Jesus comes to the feast, walks up to the temple, and immediately begins teaching them the truth about God. And the Jews marvel, saying, how is it that this man is so learned? How is he, how is, does he know all these things if he's never studied? You know, they can't attack Jesus' teaching. They can't poke any holes in what Jesus is saying. And so because they can't confront Jesus' teaching, they confront his training. Basically, they're saying, what, did this guy go to Harvard? Like, who is this guy? Someone show us what degree he has. What seminary did he go to? What school did he graduate from? Maybe that'll tell us why he knows so much. Jesus stumps them by showing them in verse 16 and 17 I haven't graduated from anywhere, and I didn't go to any of your schools. 
the reason you can't poke any holes into my teaching or theology is because, be, because I've been taught by my Father. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Of course he knows the scriptures better than they do. He wrote it. Of course he knows his Bible. Of course they're marveling at how much he knows. His father taught him all of it. He knows all wisdom. He has all knowledge. And of course this is a deadly encounter. Because when the one who knows it all is faced with a bunch of know-it-alls, it makes them want to kill him. This angers the Jews so much that Jesus would know all these things and way better than they do and not having gone through their system, knowing them to the point that they don't even understand the law that they have. That's why he says here, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. In him there's no falsehood. Why can you trust Jesus? He's not coming up with the message. This is the Father's message. And he's been with the Father all eternity. Verse 19, hasn't Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? They declare he has a demon that they should, who is trying to kill him? And he describes for them how they've broken the law of Moses and are angry with him because he's broken the law of Moses. Now in that, Jesus is being a little bit facetious. Jesus didn't break the law in a way that would offend God. Jesus simply did something that the Jews had already been doing. That's the example he uses here. If a baby in Israel is born, you know that eight days later they circumcise that baby. That's what would happen. And if that eighth day falls on the Sabbath, nothing would stop them from doing that. But here is Jesus taking a man who hasn't walked in 38 days, or in 38 years, he makes him to walk again like a new person and everyone's upset. The message is there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. There's never a bad time to do good things. That was the intention behind the law. That was the whole point of God's scripture. But these guys are too blind to see it. And they're too blind to see They haven't just tampered with God's law. And unlike Jesus, they haven't sought to do good. They have sought to use the law to get what they want. Jesus is a good savior, but these are bad people. And the law was never meant to save them. This is indeed a deadly encounter because these people have to come face to face with the reality that what they've believed their whole life will not do any good for them. The law of God cannot save them, and it cannot save you. It can show you that you're a sinner. It can show you that God is holy. It can show you that living for God is way better than not living for God. But what you need is not the law of God that can save because it can't do that. What you need is one who can be obedient to it, unlike you, who can take the penalty for your sin upon themselves, like Jesus, who would die and rise again and give you a hope not based on law, but based on love. Jesus was willing to die for you, 
so that you might be saved. Those who hate Jesus, like these people here, they could kill Jesus time and time again if you would allow them. Jesus asks a question here, or or makes a statement here that is something that you must do too. Verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Don't judge Jesus based on what you think of him. Judge Jesus based on what you know about him. Don't judge Jesus based on how he makes you feel. Judge Jesus based upon what is true of him and you. That'll be a lot of uncomfortable feeling coming your way. Because when you see your sin for what it truly is, and when you see how much you sin, and how many times you minimize it, and when you see that there is no hope for you, this side of heaven, except for the name of Jesus, you either believe it with all your heart and rejoice with gladness for what God has provided, or you reject it, and in misery, you try to get rid of Jesus day in and day out. All the while, Jesus still in full control over you and the rest of this world. This is a deadly encounter because from it, the Jews are incited to continue to attack Jesus. And it leads fourthly here to a divided judgment. A divided judgment. I'll move quickly here. Some of the people there said, Is not this the man whom they're seeking to kill? Word has spread around town and the Jews have become familiar with this reality that the leaders, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests, they're all looking to kill Jesus. They don't like his message. They don't like that it takes the people away from them. They don't like that it's different from what they're saying. So they want to get rid of him. Here he is speaking openly. But what's truly going on here? The people are so divided and confused. Wait, aren't they trying to kill this guy? So why don't they shut him up? Why don't they tell him to stop? Verse 26, they begin to think, maybe they're not telling him to stop because they know something we don't know. Maybe this is the Christ. And maybe all the leaders know that this is the Christ. But they're still confused. Verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. There is such a divided opinion about Jesus and no one seemingly can make up their minds. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the one born in Bethlehem. But prophecies in Isaiah and Malachi chapter 3, they tell us we won't know where the Messiah comes from. So how can we make sense of Jesus? I love when Jesus helps answer the question. For that, we can look at verse 28. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. And this isn't simply that he answered them. This is that he raised his voice and that he cried out to them. Jesus' ministry is actually one that's very tame and very gentle and very meek. But here, Jesus sees fit to declare to them, you know me and you know where I come from. I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. What is it that can make it so clear to you who Jesus is? Well, who truly sent him? 
the burning question here is, is Jesus the Son of God or not? If you believe that Jesus is truly God's Son, this isn't hard for you. But if you want to play around with the person of Jesus all your life, you will never receive what he has to offer. The good news is that God reveals himself to you at the proper time. And God draws near to himself those who will believe at the proper time. That no one will believe until the Father draws him. And so today I say to you, do you believe that Jesus is the one who's come from heaven? Do you believe that this is truly God's son? That there is no one else like him? No one else is coming to save you. There is no other opportunity. There is no other name. There is no other route. There is no other path. There is nothing you can do. If you want to get onto the ship of salvation, this is it. And his name is Jesus. Friends, what good news. Not only if you haven't believed, can you find hope in that? But if you have, then you know you are secure, not because of you, but because of Christ All those who believe in his name will be saved. And this because it is true. Jesus is the son of God. Divided opinion of him or not, the truth still stands. Jesus is God's son. A divided judgment. Fifthly here, we'll end with this. A destined location. A destined location. You might not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but sooner or later you will see that this is true. And Jesus says it so for these Pharisees and leaders here. They send out temple guards to arrest him in verse 32. Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You don't believe I'm God's son having come all the way down here? Well, guess what? I won't be here for very long. I will go back to my father and you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews begin to ask themselves, where does this man intend to go? Is he just thinking to go out to the Greeks and to teach them? How does he say you'll seek me and not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. And they ask the question for the wrong reasons, but it's the right question. Because if Jesus says to you, where I am, you cannot come, there is no more hope. The reality is, all those who believe in Jesus will go where he is. You don't believe in him when he came down, you will not see him when it's time to go up. Jesus is with his father now. And all of us have an opportunity to be real with ourselves of what's coming next for us. You can keep playing around in this life all you want. The next one is coming. And I pray to God that what you hear from Jesus is not where I am. You cannot come. The good news for us is that if you seek the Lord while he may be found, you can certainly find him. As it says in Isaiah 55, 6. The good news of me standing before you today and us hearing this message is that these words don't need to be true of you right now. That today is a day of salvation 
And if you have not believed in Jesus, you still have opportunity to. God has sat you right where you're at so that you can stop playing games with him and you can take him seriously. And you can know there is hope in this life and that hope's name is Jesus. And if you have believed in him, you're here so that you can know these words aren't true for you at all. Where Jesus is, one day you will be because he sought you out and in doing so, you have sought him out. And you have found him. And in him you have life and security of a hope in him. Why? Because Jesus is truly the son of God. Who is the Messiah and the hope of the world. And all who believe in him will never regret it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this truth. Thank you for the goodness of Jesus. The saving grace that is found in him. Thank you that all those who believe in Christ will never live to regret it. But all those who despise and reject Christ will. I pray that our friends here would take it seriously. I pray that you would grant assurance to our believing friends. Help them to know that if they've believed in Jesus and are following him, he will safely bring them home. If they didn't do anything to earn salvation, they most certainly will not do anything to hold on to it. Jesus must hold fast to us. In the same way, would we use that love of Christ as motivation to live for you in holiness, in purity, in the ways that we speak and act and think. And Father, if there's anyone here who has not believed in you, help them to believe your word that salvation is only found in the name of Christ. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.